Hello, and welcome to this Global Situation podcast from International SOS, the leading medical and security risk management business. I'm Mark Frankel. This is the podcast where we provide timely analysis and tactical insight for your organization. In this episode, we're re-examining the rapidly deteriorating public health situation in Sudan, three weeks on from the start of clashes between the regular army and a paramilitary force called the Rapid Support Forces. I asked Dr. Ryan Copeland, International SOS Regional Director for Assistance, for his latest assessment of the situation. We're already now into the third week of this crisis and the situation unfortunately continues to deteriorate. Early on, we reported about the restriction to access to healthcare, which at the time was very much linked to the security concerns and limitations of movement because of active hostilities. But today, we now have the added complexity of healthcare facilities that have actually been directly damaged by fighting. And if we consider the reports that are coming from the Sudan Doctor Syndicate, which references that 70% of hospitals adjacent to areas of clashes are out of service, and that 61 out of the 86 basic hospitals in the capital and surrounding states are unable to function, one can really start to understand the criticality of the public health situation. What's even more concerning are reports that many of the remaining hospitals are actually only currently able to provide first aid level care. And actually, many of these are at risk of imminent closure due to lack of medical personnel, medical supply issues and disruption of essential services, including water and electricity. And all of this constrained access to healthcare, which includes services for those injured in the ongoing violence, raises the risk of preventable death. And then beyond the public health and healthcare aspects, just the generic sustainability of people trying to survive in a prolonged crisis like this, where we've seen dwindling resources beyond medical supplies, including, you know, essential goods for people's survival. We're starting to see, you know, how big the impact is for the population affected. And Ryan, I've been reading reports also that many of these healthcare facilities have been taken over by the militia members of the armed forces engaged in in the conflict as well, that they have been uh, casting out some of the medical staff from these facilities. And in some instances, there have been reports of attacks on medical staff too. Yeah, so we look at what WHO have reported. The latest information is that there's been around 25 confirmed attacks on healthcare facilities. So not only are we seeing damage to infrastructure where hospitals have had to close um, due to direct shelling and explosions, the other impact is obviously the restriction of safe movement of healthcare workers to and from their place of work. So the restriction in terms of access to healthcare is both from a damage to infrastructure, but also around the inability for healthcare workers to safely, obviously, attend to patients, but also to be able to replenish staff who are able to actually access their place of work. So all of these factors are you know, compounding the impact on the ability of the healthcare system to be maintained. And you mentioned a moment ago the, the critical situation in relation to access to food, water, fuel, other critical commodities. There have also been reports from the UN of, of widespread looting of some of these supplies too. How is that affecting the ability of healthcare providers in the country to maintain services of any kind? 
So the the impact's not just on on healthcare providers. The impact is also importantly, you know, from an aid perspective. So the UN has reported that there's been looting of offices and warehouses of humanitarian organizations, which has depleted much of their supplies. And then if you take this into account, along with the fact that UN-led aid operations have essentially halted due to the fighting, you can start to see the impact that this will have on the wider population. And if we look at the fact that UN-led aid operations were already providing significant support in Sudan before the fighting started, with estimates before the conflict that around 16 million people, which is roughly one third of the population, were already in need, you can start to see how big the impact is, not just on access to healthcare, but also on access to essential commodities, including food and safe water. Ryan, what can you tell us about the the status of the National Public Health Laboratory in Sudan that's very much been in, in the news over recent days? Yeah, so WHO raised concern about this late last week. And the concern was the National Public Health Laboratory, which is in Khartoum and is actually adjacent to an area that has seen significant activities in terms of fighting. And the concern is that this laboratory is known to contain measles, cholera, multi-drug resistant tuberculosis pathogens, vaccine-derived poliovirus, and other hazardous materials. And therefore, the concern is if untrained individuals mishandle such infectious specimens, they could inadvertently infect themselves but importantly, could then also pass infections on and creating disease outbreaks. And that is one of the big concerns that the WHO raised. We've already mentioned the the very real risk of disease in the context of the failure of infrastructure and public health issues uh, in the country at the moment. In terms of dengue, malaria and the coming rainy season, potentially uh, leading to outbreaks of cholera, What can you say in regards to the preparedness of Sudan for those particular disease outbreaks at this present moment in time? So, Mark, if we look at the infectious disease risk, I think the starting point is to actually consider that even before the conflict started, there were already reports about ongoing outbreaks of dengue and malaria. So we know these vector-borne illnesses, which are endemic in Sudan, um, have been present and can therefore be expected to increase in a prolonged crisis such as this. And this is due to a combination of cessation of disease prevention programs and reduced treatment capability. But we also expect to see a rise in the food and waterborne illnesses, including cholera, like you mentioned, but also hepatitis. And this is a direct result of the disruption of safe drinking water and essential sanitation services. And we've already seen reports of residents in Khartoum needing to fetch water from river uh, sources due to the lack of safe drinking water. We've seen collections of stagnant wastewater and also human remains lying uncollected. And all of this increases the risk of serious outbreaks occurring. And then if you then take into account all the public health measures that would normally be in place to try and mitigate against this, along with the essential work that many government and aid organizations do with containment of these disease outbreaks, you can start to see how significant this risk will continue to be should the security situation not improve in the coming weeks. Yes, I mean, uh, alongside that potential for further outbreaks of these communicable diseases, 
I imagine there's also potentially an impact that the fighting in Sudan is having on vaccination and immunisation programmes in the country, given there are already programmes that were in place that uh, had been disrupted by some of the activities that we've that we've witnessed over recent days. And there's a very, very real risk, I would imagine, of of diseases such as measles and polio taking form and growing within the country in, in the coming days too. Absolutely. And, and this is typically what we see in a country with a prolonged security crisis such as this. When you have disruption to the vaccine preventable diseases, and you've mentioned some of these being measles and polio, um, that increases the risk uh, within the community. And that risk obviously is prolonged, as prolonged as this crisis will be. But we also see increased risk of meningococcal disease, respiratory illnesses, including pneumonia and obviously COVID-19. When we have large refugee population groups living in in, uh, confined areas and um, obviously moving across to new areas because of the security situation. But it's not just the vaccine preventable diseases and the communicable diseases that we see increasing with the more prolonged crisis like this. We also expect to see uh, increased complications and mortality rates as a result of poorly controlled chronic diseases. So diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure as an example. And this is also down to the disruption of the disease prevention programs, but also an inability of patients to be able to access chronic medicines in order to control these chronic diseases. Ryan, you mentioned a moment ago in in, in passing the the very real problem um, around refugees, both within Sudan and the passage of refugees to and from Sudan. The UNHCR has said that more than 21,000 refugees have left the country since fighting began. Many more refugees have migrated to neighbouring countries and uh, and many refugees are in need of assistance, food, water, health care and so on. Perhaps you could just give us a, an overview of the impact of the crisis as it currently stands on, on refugees. Uh, absolutely, Mark. And I think this is uh, a growing concern within the uh, international community. Um, if we look at the latest report from the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent, their assessment is that roughly 9 million Sudanese are thought to currently be under severe hardship. Um, and this is defined as being unable to access emergency healthcare or medicines for chronic diseases. Um, and there's already widespread displacement ongoing, mainly in Khartoum, the northern states, um, North Kordofan and Northwest and South Darfur regions. Um, and resultantly, it is thought at this stage that around 150,000 people have managed to escape to safer areas within Sudan, as well as uh, some being uh, successful in crossing borders into Chad, Egypt, South Sudan, Ethiopia, and also Central African Republic. But the fact remains that many are still stranded at the border crossings uh, between these countries. Um, And the UNHCR, in terms of their initial planning, um, estimate that around 800,000 refugees and returnees may flee Sudan to neighboring countries should the current situation continue. So in terms of the needs, it's not only going to be within Sudan. Uh, Importantly, asylum countries will need to have additional support in order to provide protection and assistance uh, to this influx uh, of refugees. And these measures will include urgent access to water, to food, shelter, 
healthcare, relief items, but importantly also things like gender-based violence response and prevention and child protection services because right now majority of the arrivals across the borders into places like Chad and South Sudan have actually been women and children. So taking all of this into account, Ryan, there's a, a lot to get our heads around. But if you were a client of, of international SOS, either within Sudan at the moment or indeed traveling through a neighboring country, what would the key things that you would want to impart to those people be in terms of you know, front of mind advice and recommendations? So for, for clients who still have a staffing country, obviously the situation is incredibly challenging. And this is compounded by the fact that many staff that remain are Sudanese nationals um, and therefore ability to be able to cross borders is heavily restricted due to visa requirements and other complexities. So the sustainability of being able to support staff members within country is obviously the key focus. And this includes, you know, the medical risk assessment around chronic disease management, sustainability in terms of access to essential goods and, um, and consumables, and also providing an element of mental health resilience. Outside of that, for clients that have been successful to move staff members either to safer areas within Sudan or into neighboring countries, a similar view needs to be taken in terms of how companies can provide resilience to their staff and dependents who have now been moved to different locations, assessing requirements in terms of access to medical care, especially in countries where the medical health system is going to be different. And then as we've discussed in previous podcasts, the mental health component for this is not just relevant for those that are caught in country. You know, managers involved, staff that have colleagues involved, all may very, very much will, um, you know, leverage on the ability to have psychological support during this incredibly challenging situation. And then to answer your question about neighboring countries, it very much depends on the type of work and activity clients will be doing. Many of our clients are in the NGO space and will be actually be deploying to some of these locations. And therefore, the assessment is very much around the evacuation planning, the healthcare capability in the event that one of their staff members becomes unwell during their deployments. Ryan, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Mark. And a reminder that you can keep up to date with all the latest information and updates about the crisis in Sudan on our website, internationalsos.com. And from there, you can find out about our global network of assistance centres available to clients 24-7. But for now, thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>